You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latinoamérica en Foco. América Latina en Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Hi, this is Karen Zessas of ASCOA Online. We're halfway through 2022, and the world is still muddling through living with a pandemic. But even if COVID is a waning force in our lives, we face new challenges as countries seek to mend economies and supply chains. Now there's one thing we're all feeling when we're in line to get groceries. Inflation. And attempts are being made to rein it in. Today, the Federal Open Market Committee raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point and anticipates that ongoing increases in that rate will be appropriate. In addition, we are continuing... About four dozen countries have raised interest rates in the last six months, and central banks in Latin America even beat the Fed. Banco de México sorprendió este jueves a los analistas al aumentar en 50 puntos base la tasa de interés hasta el 5. El Política Monetaria del Banco Central, Copom, decidió a poco aumentar a Selic, a tasa básica de juros de la economía brasileira, en un punto y medio. Hablar de la tasa de referencia que pone el Banco Central de reservas, que ahora la ha subido de 0,5% a 1%. Uh, given the, let's say, the, the prior experience of the region uh, with respect to inflation, in general, the central banks and the monetary policies were more proactive in already, uh, let's say, preventing uh, an uprise in a, the, of a sustained inflation by hiking interest rates. That was Otaviano Canuto, a senior fellow at the Policy Center for the New South and former vice president of the World Bank. He spoke with my colleague, Luisa Leme, about how Latin America is building on decades of experience to deal with inflation now, and how the problem affects politics in the region, including for a president like Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, who's seeking re-election. The temptation of, uh, of people from the extremes, populists, making promise that are not necessarily achievable is something that tends to appear in, in those circumstances. From fuel subsidies to cash transfers to brand new currencies, Canuto explains how Latin America may be in a different position to fight inflation and economic troubles today, as well as where there are opportunities for growth to overcome investors' worries. But first, we talk about another malady, corruption. How are countries making progress when it comes to fighting it? I spoke with Brian Winter, Vice President of ASCOA and Editor-in-Chief of America's Quarterly, about the latest edition of the Capacity to Combat Corruption Index. Published in partnership with Control Risks, the report measures 15 Latin American countries' ability to detect, punish, and prevent corruption. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hi, Karen. It's good to see you. So what are the main takeaways from this year's CCC index? The main takeaway is that the anti-corruption drive is not dead. Uh, You know, there's this perception that you find in a lot of countries 
in the Americas, whether it be in presidential palaces or corporate suites or even you know sidewalk cafes, conversations with friends, that the big anti-corruption push that we saw in the 2010s is over, uh, that it was undone by many of its mistakes and abuses, such as what we saw with the car wash case uh, in Brazil, where a lot of those decisions, especially the ones against uh, former president Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, uh, now a candidate for president, you know, all of those cases were either dismissed or thrown out. Um, there was also a perception that because of COVID, among other things, that uh, anti-corruption had just kind of fallen off the radar and that citizens and governments weren't really paying attention to it anymore. And we see in this year's index that that's not really true that there are governments that are making progress, um, strengthening their institutions and rule of law. As we just saw in elections in Colombia, where corruption was really either the number one or number two issues in polls, this is still a big concern for ordinary citizens. And you can even make a case that now as the pandemic uh, hopefully starts to wind down, that the same issues that made the anti-corruption push um, really rise to prominence in the 2010s. I'm talking about things like the growth of the middle class, the spread of social media, some of these changing values. Some of these same issues are going to make an even bigger comeback in the next couple of years. Well, that's good to hear that there's some some good news. Let's stop and look a little bit more specifically. What are some countries where you saw things get more worrying? And were there any bright spots in the index? Yeah, well, let's start with the bright spots, just because it, it always surprises people <laughs> to hear um, some of these positive stories. Uh, you know, Uruguay was still the country that finished number one in the index, even though uh, its score did actually decline a bit in 2022. It was followed by Costa Rica, Chile, and then Peru. Of course, remember that a rising score is it basically means better uh, ability of a country to prevent, uh, detect, and punish corruption. And, you know, what we see in these countries is essentially strengthening institutions. We see kind of across the board, their legal capacity, as we call it, uh, looks better. Um, some countries also see, you know, civil society and media, the strength of those institutions are also taken into account. So the the index ends up being kind of an x-ray on the health of a lot of different things. The biggest gainer in the index, actually, the biggest improvement was in the Dominican Republic, which uh, placed fifth. And that's because you, you really have a government there that has placed a lot of emphasis on this topic, but also shown that it is willing to um, investigate its own. Uh, we really saw this year three main stories jumped out. Um, the two biggest countries in the region, Brazil and Mexico, both saw their scores decline. Mm. And I think that, you know, a lot of people who listen to your podcast, Karin, will be familiar with this story. In both countries, we have leaders who, you know, ideologically don't have a lot in common, but they they do believe and, and talk often about their personal ability to reduce corruption. Mm -hmm. um, and they are both leaders who have been perceived as undermining uh, democratic and judicial institutions during their time in office. Mm -hmm. And given, given this mixed picture, I also want to uh, let listeners know this is the fourth year of the CCC index. So 
One question I have for you, Brian, you touched on this a little bit in your first answer. As you look at the past four years and the the panorama for anti-corruption efforts in the region, is there one major change or trend you've seen over this time when it comes to the region's ability to combat corruption? I know that it's a bit difficult to generalize about an entire region, but a trend that stands out to you. Look, it's no secret that uh, democracy has been under stress throughout the Americas, including, of course, in the United States over the last four years since we started publishing this index. And one thing you see in a lot of different countries is, you know, democracy and the institutions themselves being under pressure. The good news is that in a lot of these same countries where we've seen institutions under duress, like, again, Mexico and Brazil, we have seen a strengthening in the mobilization of civil society and the media that doesn't quite compensate for what's happening on the institutional side, but it does keep the issue on the radar. I don't think the region is more corrupt than it used to be. In fact, I think the opposite is probably the case. What has changed over the years is that corruption has just become much more difficult to hide, not only because we're in democracies now in most countries and institutions um, have developed, but also because of an independent press uh, and social media, which you know roots out so many of these cases that used to be buried and never see the light of the day. Pressure will continue to stay on over time on governments to basically be as effective as they can against corruption. I think a lot of governments understand that fighting corruption, detecting it is in their interest because it's what will allow their governments to remain stable over time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm going to ask our listeners to check the podcast notes so that they can access the link and look at all of the results for this year's CCC Index. And thanks again for being with me, Brian. Thank you. Next, on to our main segment, our conversation with Ottaviano Canuto on how Latin America is dealing with inflation. Ottaviano Canuto, thank you so much for participating in the podcast Latin America in Focus. It's a pleasure to be here, Lisa. Canuto, Inflation is rising at the fastest pace in 40 years in the United States. It's reaching 8.6% for the 12 months ending in May. In Latin America, people are feeling this crisis as well with a vague memory of the 80s and 90s. And they're saying, well, hold my beer. (laughs) How is inflation affecting Latin America compared with the United States and other developed countries? All right, Lisa. Well, first of all, we have to take into account the fact that we are watching a global inflationary shock, very much uh, the result of a perfect storm that has been playing, uh, affecting the whole economy, the whole global economy to different degrees for a conjunction of factors that might sound, when put together, even almost apocalyptical. We had the pandemic that is not ended yet, as we can see still in the uh, generalized lockdowns in China. We still have the pandemic being spread through uh, infections and deaths and so on. So the pandemic 
already burst uh, uh, last year an inflationary shock because of uh, particularly supply chain constraints and the difficulties that the pandemic brought, even to the production of food. It comes to my mind the, uh, the Germans and the Spaniards organizing uh, emergency trips by plane to gather people to, to work in the harvests in Eastern Europe and North Africa. So we had the pandemic already leading to a shock. And then we have the war, the invasion and the war in Ukraine, which has directly affected both uh, the prices of energy and also the food price, given the, the, the bread basket position of Ukraine and also of Russia. This has led to the highest level ever uh, collected for the food price index by the FAO, by the Food and Agriculture Organization, Europe. in March. WFP noted that the Russian Federation and Ukraine are responsible for 29% of the global wheat trade and that any serious disruption of production and exports from the region could push food prices beyond their current 10-year highs. And so we have the pandemic, we have war as a likely result, one might say, of the tremendous spike in food price all over the world, we're going to have as well hunger. That's why I say it's almost apocalyptical. It sounds like we are quoting Ezekiel. The perfect storm. Yeah, the perfect storm and apocalyptical in that sense. Now, th those shocks uh, are common to what has happened with inflation in Europe, in the US, and also in Latin America. But there are important differences. In the case of the advanced economies, because they had the fiscal space to do so, there was a huge transfer of uh, income to the population as a way to countervail the, the pandemic crisis, as we know. Less so the case in non-advanced economies, even though we had some important transfers in the case of Brazil, we didn't have in the case of Mexico. But the point that I want to raise is the following. Definitely the, the tremendous income transfer operated in the U.S. lifted the demand, domestic demand, uh, to really high levels. That combination of high demand uh, with uh, the supply constraints explains why the shock has been so accentuated in the case of the U.S. Uh, to some extent as well as in Europe. This impulse to demand in the U.S. came with uh, a change in the composition of consumption. Out of service, no tourism, no no going to the haircut, and an increased demand for laptops, for uh, home TVs, and so on. The system, the global system, was not apt to deliver on time the huge demand for these durable goods. This is not the case necessarily in most countries in Latin America. We don't, you don't have the issue of aggregate demand, but you do have the price shocks lifting inflation in Latin America. So I would say in the U.S., this was really a straight cause of the pandemic. The pandemic stimulus really increased demand. People are spending more. There's more money circulating, more inflation. And in Latin America, it's a different story. In Latin America, although you did have some uh, manifestation of these supply chain uh, constraints, you didn't have, uh, at the same time, the same demand impulse, the, the, the same excess of demand vis-a-vis -vis supply. And also, uh, given the, let's say, the, the prior experience of the region uh, with respect to inflation, in general, the central banks 
and the monetary policies were more proactive in already, uh, let's say, preventing uh, an uprise in a, the, of a sustained inflation by hiking interest rates. Brazil is at the forefront of that. Other countries in the region, they all, in general, tighten their, their monetary policies to contain the inflationary diffusion. Okay. And another way uh, to tackle inflation in Latin America has been through subsidizing fuel prices. Um, I want to would like to know if you think this is effective. Mexico, Chile, Colombia, federal governments are doing this across the region, or they're just boosting a policy of subsidies for fuel they already have. In Brazil, President Bolsonaro is pressuring Petrobras as well. He has changed the head of the oil company at least three times this year. Can interest rates then with fuel price control really solve this? Look, Luisa. The, the resort to this kind of, uh, of instrument is, is definitely suboptimal. Uh, and why I'm saying this? Of course, the temptation to provide tax exemptions, as the case of uh, Bolsonaro now in Brazil, is, mm-hmm. of course, this apparently provides uh, a relief in terms of uh, price of the oil derivatives available to consumers and so on. And so you would say, okay, that's a contribution to lowering inflation and maybe replacing, substituting for uh, interest rate hikes. But there's a double problem with that. Look, we rather have straight income transfers or increased income transfers to the bottom of the pyramid as a way to help the poor population to cope with, uh, uh, with the price hikes then this kind of, of subsidies, this kind of measure, because this measure ends up benefiting, uh, or let's say providing gains to the whole spectrum of income. Uh, see, you, you have an automobile, who has more automobiles? The upper part of the income pyramid. If you provide the income transfers, and most of the countries in the region have have schemes to do that. Brazil has. Brazil had the, the registry of the Bolsa Familia and now the registry of the uh, Brazil uh, aid plan. And in this, those instruments would be preferable in terms of uh, uh, lowering, first of all, the fiscal burden of the measures. And, uh, and second, by targeting to whomever who really needs. Uh, so those kind of measures I wouldn't recommend as the best way to cope with the issue. You know, in the in the case of Brazil, uh, during past bouts of inflation in 1994, there was the uh, a whole new solution for the inflation problem. Um, and I am not sure if there are other countries in Latin America that have done the same. That I'm talking about the Plano Real. Henrique Cardoso anunciou as três etapas do plano econômico. The government transitioned its currency from something almost with no value to a currency unit that was sort of fictitious, right? And then to the real. Can you tell us a little bit about this story? Yes, yes. Uh, look, the, the risk is, as the experience in Latin America showed quite clearly, and that's the ultimate fear of all central bankers, including in the US and, and in Europe and everywhere, is that the thing that cannot happen is whether, let's say, a inflationary pace that is taking place start contaminating expectations, what the, the private agents 
think is the tendency with respect to inflation, because when that happens, the backward-based beliefs by private agents leads them to try to anticipate those inflationary pace, and then they start practically demanding higher prices, and then the inflation became sustained. Mas no caso do feijão, o aumento chegou a 100% nos últimos 60 dias. You're making me re remember my childhood in, in Sao Paulo when, you know, my parents would take me to the supermarket and you would buy all the meat that you could on the first day of the month and try to skip the remarcadores hired by the supermarkets to tag the, the meat with a new price because by the end of the month you wouldn't be able to buy the same stuff. That was the case in Brazil, as uh, I also knew quite well, but also in other high inflationary uh, contests in, in the region. Now, the trick... Is, is how to break that, is mm -hmm. how to break that vicious cycle. Several experiments, some of them succeeded uh, on a permanent base, managed to break the vicious circle of uh, expectations of high inflation and the, the inflation process itself. And in some cases, pegging to, to the dollar or to a basket of, of, of foreign exchange currencies uh, was made, you know, uh, using as a reliable source of stability. And uh, in the case of Argentina, uh, a very radical solution was to establish a currency board with a, a, a peg of one-to-one -one between the local currency and, and the dollar, the U.S. dollar. Con más del 200% de inflación mensual por una ley de la economía después de un periodo de hiperinflación the tricky and smart and very successful Brazilian way was to create another parallel currency, the URV, which was the value of which was adjusted on a daily basis and therefore uh, taking into account inflation until the previous date and establishing a transition period in which Everything could be priced on both currencies, the official currency, uh, suffering the inflation on a daily basis, and this other one, which was stable because it was packeted to the previous inflation. Depois que o Congresso mudar a Constituição, o Banco Central começa a divulgar um novo indexador. É a Unidade Real de Valor, URV, um índice que vai variar todo dia, junto com o dólar comercial. And the idea was exactly giving the time for the relative price to adjust in terms of the URV, and, and gradually the URV became the, the reference in terms of uh, unit of account. The, the unit of real value, right? Unidade de real valor. That's right, that's right. And so after a, a certain interval, which was not long, uh, the government could say, okay, you're ready to simply call the URV uh, another uh, currency, real, real, and simply debunk the, the other one or the inflationary one. And, and of course, that worked well. So the trick is always in those cases when inflation ran away and it's out of control and its expectations are holding them uh, at the very high levels is to, to find a way to the link, to break the expectations about inflation and the currency. 
Canuto, that brings me to my next question that, you know, the finance minister that installed that plan is named Fernando Henrique Cardoso. He was elected and then re-elected yeah. president. So when we talk about these policies of to control inflation, we're also talking about trust that the government has the economy under control. People's pocketbooks matter when it comes to elections. Do you see this inflation crisis affecting Brazil presidential race? Yes, I do, Luisa. Uh, in the following sense, uh, it took long for some economists to understand that <laughs> the poor people dislike inflation, among other reasons, because they don't have the means to defend themselves like the upper classes have. By, for instance, Brazilian case, uh, banking accounts daily adjusted uh, according to inflation. So, and that's why Fernando Ricardozo, uh, to the dismay and surprise of uh, his opponents, including economists of the Workers' Party, who got such a popularity when he was held responsible for uh, the change in, in inflation. And now inflation is affecting the popularity of incumbents. Uh, well, here as well, in the U.S. <laughs> inflation is a real challenge to American families. Today's inflation report confirmed what Americans already know. Putin's price hike is hitting America hard. Gas prices... You know that, uh, this is the vulnerable uh, component of uh, President Biden's popularity. People don't, don't care if uh, the, the oil price and the gasoline price hikes are coming are putin's fault or and so on they they are reacting to what's happening uh, in their uh, consumption basket and so on so it, it happens as well there and definitely it has been an important factor helping the popularity of uh, bolsonaro to go down the drain in the last few years, almost all voters in Latin America decided to change who was in power. With that in mind, Canuto, what would you say about the next few years? So we're talking about the future. How do you see the anti-establishment politicians that have been elected in recent years handling this problem? Right. And can they do this? Maybe they cannot. You you tell me. Yeah, see, Lisa, the region that's reasonably well South America, I'm thinking of South America, particularly now, in the previous decade, the, decade, the first decade of the new millennium, with a poverty reduction, ascent of a middle classes, an aspiration of a continued progress, and so on. And then we entered into a decade uh, when things really changed uh, reasonably uh, dramatically, in some cases, Brazil is a case, others less so. And in the whole region, was a tendency was put in place challenging incumbents. However, the incumbents are more to the left or to the right. And we saw that expressed in several elections in the region. In, in those situations, particularly in those countries where, let's say, the establishment was more moderate, having in mind here Col uh, Colombia, for instance, mm -hmm. the temptation of, uh, of people from the extremes, populists, making promise that are not necessarily achievable is something that tends to appear in, in those circumstances. We had this here in the Together, U.S. We will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. Right? Mr. Trump won an election, alluding to something that was impossible to take place, the idea of rewinding the clock in America's history. Together, 
we will make America great again. So as to go back to the 50s and 60s when it comes to manufacturing, appealed to, to the fantasy that the, the issues regarding uh, income distribution, regarding, let's say, the income of the lower and middle class in the U.S., in some mm -hmm. regions particularly, was due to Chinese products, was due to immigration, and not to the, the failings of the system in the U.S. to reskill workers, uh, to adjust the, the labor force to the technological change that has had been happening in the last decades. So uh, it was a lie, a false promise. By the way, the same method that also worked out for the proponents in, in, in the U.K. with the Brexit. So these are, uh, let's say, phony dreams, phony objectives, but very much appealing uh, for part of the population. Typically, populists uh, promise things that cannot be reached. And, and then you have the frustration and upheavals and so on. Now, the region is also very much prone uh, at this moment for uh, social unrest. The issue of the food price, of course, South America is not exactly like Sri Lanka uh, or to some parts of sub-Saharan Africa or even the Middle East when it comes to the effects of the uh, food price shock. But the fact of the matter is that it is hurting. In terms of GDP, in terms of growth, in terms of uh, it has been good for most countries in South America that are commodity exporters. But when it comes to, to the condition of the people down the income pyramid, it has been tough. So uh, the likelihood of uh, the risk of a uh, social unrest against incumbents uh, is high in several parts of the region. So that's what you see happening in case these new governments in Latin America don't tackle this problem. That's right. Exactly so. It's a, it's a storm on the top of the perfect storm. Yes. Or uh, an additional chapter of uh, the, the, the intermediate storm that has way <laughs> <laughs> through, through the Okay. Kanuto, I don't want to end this great interview with such a, a pessimist and, and worrisome note. Right. So I'm going to ask you if you've seen recent years, in addition to inflation, economic stagnation, uh, facing all this situation, are there any countries in the region you see as handling this challenge as well? And why are they handling it well? Until recently, at least, I'm thinking of uh, in South America in this case, we would detach uh, Chile, Colombia, Peru as countries that had managed well their macroeconomies and not by chance they were uh, exhibiting growth rates uh, a bit uh, above the average in the other countries, performing better than Brazil, than Argentina, Venezuela. Bolivia as well has not been that bad when it comes to macroeconomic management, right? So I would detach those, I would highlight those cases uh, to be seen whether the ongoing change, uh, whether uh, Chile doesn't enter into a mess with uh, uh, the constitutional uh, change, whether Peru finds its way out of an extreme as well as, as Colombia. But one important point to just to, to close, there is a, a, an avenue for economic growth in the region, Lisa, that is very important to highlight because it is, it is really 
one that uh, can and should be pursued, which is green infrastructure investments. There is a, a, a huge opportunity for the region to return to a, a better growth path if it puts its house in order and combine uh, domestic uh, public accounts with uh, with uh, foreign foreign money uh, to lift to uplift a wave of green investments, which would be a contribution in itself to the climate change, but also in terms of growth for the region. Green infrastructure would be a stronger appeal than, let's say, the fear that investors have of high inflation. Uh, I don't see this time the inflation running out of control. Okay. It, it could be a higher risk in case where uh, the, the fragility of, uh, of balance of payments, the fragility of, of public accounts might, let's say, uh, lead and be accompanied by some sort of a capital outflows. That's not the case, the major risk being faced by the Brazilian economy, for instance, or even the other one. So they will feel the brunt of uh, the interest rate hikes here in the U.S., but not, let's say, something similar to the disasters that we had in the past. Well, of course, uh, we have the special case. Argentina is is caged in its uh, own overinflationary uh, situation and so on, a return to the past. But uh, overall, the the condition of the macroeconomic condition of uh, most South American countries is not that bad. Kanuto, I really appreciate your, your time and our conversations. This was great. So thank you so much for coming to Latin American Focus. A pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This podcast was produced by our executive producer, Luisa Leme. The music featured in this episode is Mamai Oshum, recorded by Alexandre and Douglas Lora. And Taji, performed by the Cliff Corman Ensemble. Check the podcast notes for links to hear both tracks recorded for America Society's Music of the Americas program. at musicoftheamericas.org. And access the Capacity to Combat Corruption Index at as-coa.org slash ccc2022. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Give us five stars. Write a review, share, and subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.